This is Passing for Normal, conversations with artists, activists, and awakeners about how they are seeding change in the world. I'm your host, Sharon Weil, author of Donnie and Ursula Save the World and the new book, Changeability, a work of nonfiction exploring how to navigate change with more effectiveness and ease. How do you find courage? How do you become more effective in navigating change? Find out when you join us for fun and insightful discussion with some very inspirational people about how to turn purpose and passion into action while at the same time passing for normal. Hello and welcome to Passing for Normal Season 3, post-election special, where I'm talking with somatic psychologist Amber Gray. We as a country are still reeling from our presidential election where the Democrats are stunned and the Republicans are mixed and everyone is uncertain how we as a country are going to find ways to regain some sense of balance in the face of what is for many a shocking result that feels very dangerous. Amber Gray is with me today because she works clinically and directly with survivors of all types of deep trauma and has tools that we can apply to how we are feeling right now. Welcome, Amber. Thank you, Sharon. I'm really happy to be here. I'm very happy to be talking to you. And uh, for me personally, I want to I learn what you have <laughs> to say for us. And uh, I'm, very, uh, I'm very grateful that you're going to be able to uh, share with the audiences your deep levels of understanding about trauma and um, how it relates to what, what many of us are experiencing right now. Absolutely. And, and I know you and I just saw each other and talked about what, what happened in the immediate aftermath. And I had to practice. It's always interesting when we're given opportunities to practice what we, what we do as professionals. You know, all the things I recommend and suggest to my clients, I had to put them into practice immediately um, and have been continuing to do so. So. Absolutely. And, and me as the author of a book about change and developing changeability, I was like, oh, okay, so now we've gone from the general to the very specific and urgent. And so yep. it also yes. has called upon me to really um, use what I know as well. And, and also the field of work that you and I both share. So um, before we really jump into our conversation, I do want the audience to know a little bit more about you. So I'm going to give them some information, if I may. Great. Um, great. So Amber Gray is a psychotherapist, movement therapist, and public health professional. She's been working clinically with survivors of organized violence, torture, war, and combat-related trauma, ritual abuse, domestic violence, and community violence for over 20 years. She provides training worldwide to professionals and paraprofessionals who work with survivors of extreme interpersonal and social trauma who wish to integrate somatic movement, mindfulness, and creative arts-based therapies into their work. She also works with governmental and non-governmental organizations responding to disasters and complex humanitarian emergencies to develop and sustain staff care programs for their teams. Amber is tireless in how she offers herself and has an enormous resource to offer some of the most troubled people in the world. So by, by giving all of that information in your experience, Amber, I just want people to know how deeply uh, skilled and experienced you are in these areas. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I always like to reference the, the clients whom I've worked with in, in many places all over the world and, and hope that the work that I do and share and teach reflects their courage. That's where much of what I will share today comes from. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so many people are walking around in a daze, depressed, uh, in uh, deep grief-like symptoms, as if, um, as if they've been hit by a death of someone that they know. Um, so how, how does this relate to uh, the way in which you view trauma and the way in which you work with trauma? Is this trauma? Well, that's an interesting question. And I was thinking about this actually um, since I saw you. And, you know, trauma is, trauma is, is defined in, in many ways. There's a clinical definition, which is someone who meets the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. So that may not be true for everyone. 
But being traumatized, I often describe at the level of the body, which is where we live our lives. It's the site of all human experience. I often describe it as a deep imprint of fear or terror that shifts in, 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 in the moment of exposure to whatever it is, how we meet the world, how we meet ourselves and how we meet the world. So that's not a scientific definition, but that's a real life. I'm, you know, this is, this is me being human mm-hmm. in a world where there's a lot of challenges definition. I think many people may be traumatized. And what we know about trauma is that people with prior histories, significant exposures, people who are traumatized may be at greater risk for ongoing traumatization. I would say that the impact of this particular election, because of what people have at stake, because of what people may rightfully be afraid of, be terrified of, that people may truly be traumatized that they're in it's because what trauma really is, is is we have experienced in the moment of exposure, which is we're faced with a threat. If it's danger, we experience fear. And if it's life threat, we experience terror. And each of those exposures creates different pathways. Can you, can you, um, can you talk about the distinction a little bit more? I'm going, yeah, I'm actually going to, I okay, great. prepared Sorry. more than I usually do. Um, yeah. So what, so what I'm actually, I'm actually referencing one of the big influences on my work, Stephen Porges polyvagal theory and his work, which I discovered 20 years ago has really shaped my clinical work and more and more how I have cho- chosen to engage with the world. So just to come back to the idea of people walking around dazed, I that what, what I've heard a lot of people say and how I described myself was as immobilized. Mm-hmm. I actually wasn't surprised. I, I somewhat expected what happened in the election and was immobilized. So immobilization can also be called a shutdown response. And it's, the, it's one that I've probably heard described the most. So... What, what happened, basically the responses that we have in, in, res, in response, or I should say, I'm going to pause for a moment and, and regroup my thoughts. When we're faced with danger as humans, based on our evolutionary ancestry, when we're faced with danger, we feel fear. And what we tend to do in response to fear is what many people know as fight or flight. It's a mobilization response. Mm-hmm. We prepare to defend ourselves or to flee. When we're faced with life threat, we experience terror. And what tends to happen then is we shut down, we immobilize. And that's so that we're not perceptible. Both of these strategies are behavioral strategies that arise from our evolutionary ancestry, the part of us that, that has a trace of some prior species that is not as highly evolved as us, um, and they're, 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 they're important strategies. That's what helps us to survive. So we do them out of necessity. And they're important and they should be celebrated. It's what keeps us here. Um, the immobilization response is uh, one of the hormones that increases is endorphins so that we actually feel less pain in the moment. Mm. Our respiration goes down. Our heart rate goes down. It's so that, it's so that we might preserve life by not being perceptible. Because oh, wow. we're actually, yeah, we actually believe. And the belief, you know, I ha- this is an important distinction. It's really, it's called neuroception. It's a subcortical process. It's not something we're actively thinking. We might actually be able to say, well, wait, these are just election results. This right. is just four years. Right. Yes, and somewhere in my body, I experience terror. Perhaps I'm a black person. Perhaps I'm a Muslim. Perhaps I'm gay, what, whoever I am, who's, there are people who've already been targeted by this, this, this new administration and the people who are coming into it. So the terror would be very real. And so while there might not be a giant tiger or grizzly bear in front of us ready to eat us, we might still perceive life threat. Mm-hmm. So that's where a shutdown or a mobilization comes in. A mobilization, the fight flight, again, there's danger is not the same as life threat. It's dangerous. It might be a poisonous snake. I'm much bigger than the snake. I probably have more of a chance of beating it than I do a grizzly bear. If it strikes me, if it bites me, 
then I'm in trouble. But danger is less immediate in terms of the actual threat to my life. And we tend to have the two options. We can fight or we can flee. Mm-hmm. In the immobilization, the shutdown, we're shutting down because there are no other options left. So, so one of the things that I like to say, and these, I won't get into the science, but we basically, these are based on, again, it's a bow to our um, ancestry through the pathway of evolution, two neural circuits that govern how we meet the world. It's the vagus nerve, the dorsal vagus is, is involved in the shutdown the ventral vagus is involved in what we call social engagement. That's our ability to stay present and be with the world. The sympathetic adrenal is that mobilization or fight flight. I like to say from these two, the two neural circuits of the vagus nerve, the dorsal and the ventral, we have three pathways. The pathways are social engagement, which again is when we're in a state of grace with the world. The world is safe. We can choose to move in and out out of the relationships, the environment we want. Mobilization and immobilization, which I just talked about. Mm -hmm. There are five states associated with this. So social engagement is associated with a state of safety. Mobilization Mm -hmm. in fear is the fight or flight. Mobilization without fear are play states. Mm. So play can run the gamut. Play is on a continuum from competitive play to intimate play. Um, You know, everything from volleyball or hardcore sports to foreplay to intimacy. And then immobilization has two states. Immobilization in fear is the shutdown. It's really immobilization in terror. Without fear, it's deep rest and settle. So what I, you know, to move, shift from the theoretical to the actual, to the real, to the what can I do, I actually have identified three states that I think um, are more, what I'm going to call more mainstream ways to look at how we feel. They're states that are based on these physiological states that I just described. And what I invite people to do is to actually create three columns on a piece of paper. And one column says, will be headed with center, ground, and contain. Another column will say calm and relax. And the third column is mobilize and energize. And these are three states that we humans constantly flow in and out of based on the demands of the moment and the day. We put it into high gear when we need to get somewhere. We need to get something done. We need to do an aerobics workout. We calm down when we need to process something slowly. Think about it. Engage with somebody in a slow, thoughtful way. Um, We ground and center when we're off balance. Everybody is off balance now. And just to come back to, you know, something you taught me, I I mentioned this to you on Tuesday in in a jungle gym class. Physicists say that the farther we fall from equilibrium, the more opportunities there are to create and innovate. So that's where we are. And creativity and innovation can be birthed through our ability to literally flow through these states of ground, center, contained, calm, relax, energize, mobilize. So what, practically speaking, making those three columns and, pe- and having people identify, this is what I do with my clients, this is what I do for myself, What supports me to find center? What supports me to calm down? What supports me to energize? And am I getting enough rest? Rest is a really important component because rest states, there's so much information now and it's important to stay informed. Um, It's important to learn as much as we can, but rest is where we assimilate and sleep is where we create new neural pathways and solidify or cement new memories. So that's how we're going to start to embed our bodies in that creative, innovative action. Is by rest and so that, sleep. Yes, getting enough of it. Enough sleep, enough, enough rest, it. meditating, right? Which is absolutely rest, puts yeah. you in a restful state, yeah. Yeah, so it's a balance. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about is I, I, there's sort of three general tips. So this is a little more general, and then I'll come back to the body. But the first tip is to trust your body. Our bodies have our own sense of timing and our own sense of justice. So every one of us, so I I remember immediately people were saying, well, cry for 24 hours and then move on. We've got work to do. Everybody has our own sense of timing and it's important now to honor it. It's important for people to cry when they need to. Some people might need two weeks. Some people might be ready after a day. And it's going to come in waves. There are going to be things that hit us from the news or from the reality of of appointments in the administration, whatever happens. 
So trust your bodies, what it needs to do, and trust its sense of justice. Our bodies are wired to know when we're safe and when we're not safe. Deep histories of trauma, sometimes people, their body actually becomes a betrayer. So it may be harder to really suss out, is the environment safe or not? And that's why we need each other. And so one of my other tips is connect. Mm -hmm. We know that social support in humanitarian contexts promotes resiliency. We know that the single biggest predictor of human happiness is relationship. Connect to people. So many people have said, I feel completely alone and isolated. And I'm saying, then connect. If, if so many of us feel alone and isolated, then we need to gather together sometimes to take action, to mobilize. There's lots of action popping up around the country. Sometimes to have fun. The, the, the Norwegians used laughter as, as an antidote to the horrors of the, of the Nazis in World War II. Mm-hmm. So coming together to laugh and that's, I call that a mobilization response, is really important. And then learning and gathering as much information without burning out. You know, learn as much as we can. And to avoid burnout, take those rests. Gather with people for fun and enjoyment. Gather with people we love. It's very, very important. Some people are challenged because the people they love voted differently, have yes. a different opinion. Um, and that divisiveness is creeping into really important relationships. So that's where I think the taking the breaks, knowing what centers and grounds, how do I come home to myself? You know, for me, it's actually standing on the earth. I actually go outside barefoot, unless it's freezing cold, but sometimes even when it is, and feel my feet on the earth. And I do a simple grounding practice, which I'm actually happy to share. You know, I can, I can, I can walk us through it. And that helps to center me and figure out what I need to do to start to process some of the changes that may be happening in relationships. Many of us may create new relationships as a result of this. That's right, because, you know, as you were, as you were saying, as, as I was saying, that, you know, when we are far from equilibrium, when, you know, the stability of what we perceived as balanced is, is off, and in this case feels like it's undermined, then it is the time it is. It does offer new openings. It is a time for creation and innovation and creating new connections and finding a new way. I mean, after all, that is what was said that was the mandate of this election, or at least the, the popularity of this election was based on people wanting change. They did not want, they may not know what kind of change is coming, but they did not want it to be as it was. And so right. that's guaranteed now. It's not going to be as it was. We don't know what it's going that's to be for yet. Sure. We don't know what it's going to be yet, but it does offer an opportunity once we regain balance and safety, as you say, you know, and calm. Uh, it does offer an opportunity for, for creating new everything, new alliances, new visions, new um, efforts, right? Exactly. Precisely. Yes. And it's, and it's not easy. I mean, as we talk about it, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of pain associated with it. And that's why I think it is important. The most important place, the most important refuge and sanctuary we all have is our body. It's also the most important, I'm going to use a strong word, weapon we have. If we need to fight, and that's a mobilization, I think mobilization as a play state sometimes includes fighting. You know, dogs play fight. Mm-hmm. We may be in those. We may, we may be called upon to stand up for things that we really believe in. That's a mobilization state. It's our, whether or not we meet it with fear or with love will determine whether it's mobilization in or, or not in fear. But it's something that we may be called to do. Taking action helps people to feel better. It helps us feel better. What can I do? So that dazed and mobilized state many of us had when the timing is right, when we've grieved, when we've sat still long enough and tried to find our, you know, restored our bearings, then we might begin to say, okay, what action do I need to take? Um, I know for me, the first thing that I did was I walked my friend's dog. I was in Melbourne, Australia. I was staying with very, very dear friends. They were really gracious with me as I sat in stunned and cried and stunned and cried. And the first thing that I did was walk their dog because I'm a dog fanatic. I love dogs and mm-hmm. I love walking and I love nature. 
and I particularly love Australian nature. That's what I did. Simple actions. Simple actions and not just actions, but um, being in nature, you know, connects you in a, in a resonance with the natural world, which is very nourishing and supportive. You know, I know several people, uh, you know, especially environmental activists who uh, were just devastated as these election results were coming in and who said, okay, I turned off, I turned off the television and I went outside and I looked at the moon. Mm-hmm. Or you know, yeah. the next day, in- the next day, I walked by the ocean. I live here in Santa Monica by the ocean. So, right, you know, not just walking anywhere, but walking in nature, walking, you know. So not just being in any environment, but being in an environment that supports you, right? Exactly. Our support base is so much bigger than we often realize. We have a whole planet that supports us, right? This is, comes to, our, you know, our shared practice of continuum movement. We're 70 to 80% water, so is the earth. That the resonance between us, which is communicated through water, through the flow of water, means that the entire earth can support us. So just as she needs us now more than ever, we need her. Mm. We need, and I know, you know, to learn to bow into, rest into the enormous loving heart arms of mother earth for me that's going to be one of my calm and rest and center and ground practices just resting into the earth and learning what i can learn i think there's a lot i think a lot of quiet moments and learning new things is what's going to support us um yeah yeah yeah. You know, I, I, just, I just thought of something that also might be helpful. So in terms of, you know, knowing what helps me or you or any of us to center, ground, contain, to calm, relax, or to energize, mobilize, grounding often has to do with the body's weight. Literally, can I feel, feel myself here? And as I said, I can walk us through a very simple grounding strategy. Working with calm and relax, any breath-based activity can be very helpful. So everything from the simple Shamatha Vipassana, you know, the basic, the basic um, Buddhist meditation of watching the exhale, which is now called focused attention in the neuroplasticity circles. It actually grows the brain. It actually increases gray matter and increases neural pathways. Breath will regulate us in the direction we need to go. So a depressed, sad system will upregulate. A hyperactive, anxious system can downregulate. Breath is really important actually to shift in all of these states and then energize, mobilize anything having to do often activities that engage the spine very actively can wake us up. Everything from dance and aerobics to walking to running. um, Those are the kinds of activities, even engaging our mind. So I know what particular activities, the heart is also an important piece that I don't want to leave out any heart based loving kindness. I think kindness is going to be so crucial right now. Mm -hmm starting with self. So I've been spending a lot of time putting my hand on my heart and I'm anybody listening right now to this as can talking. practice this. Yeah. yeah. Right now. And actually here, we'll actually put, put, let's put our hands on our sternum first. And for the next two or three breaths, this is called regulation breathing. Every time we exhale, just gently press your sternum downward as you're exhaling. That's the natural movement. The sternum uprises in the inhale and it rests down, releases in the exhale. And when we just echo that dropping down on the exhale, we're actually, this is a very simple breath activity that will help us to regulate, to shift our state out of fear and into more of a safety state. And for some people, they may need to do 20 breaths, We're just doing a few now to practice. Mm -hmm. And then I always invite people to notice if there's been any state shifts. So we didn't do a baseline before, but I know that I feel actually a little bit calmer and I actually feel my core a little bit more right now. I can feel the center of my body. And I feel a real comfort in the pressing of my hand. It's, you know, the meeting of my hand on on my breastbone. It feels comforting to me. Yes, and one of the things that we know is oxytocin receptors are present in the heart. 
they're very present in the belly and the face. And so when we offer ourselves contact, I often call, um, I often hug my own belly, um, like literally hug myself. I call it the oxytocin hug. We're, we're creating self-love and we all need to begin the kindness and the love with ourselves, the compassion with ourselves. So now I'm going to invite us to put our hands on our heart, wherever we think our heart is, um, and do the same thing. So we've regulated the breath. And now as I'm exhaling, I'm pressing into my heart, but I'm actually going to spiral my hand because the heart is a double helix spiral. So I'm spiraling my hand and actually imagining that I'm sending my exhale into my heart and spiraling it from the inside. And I believe we can stimulate those oxytocin receptors, create a sense of self-compassion and self-love by doing this. It's also possible we might be able to grow our hearts a little bit bigger. The Grinch did. <laughs> and I think, all, I think all humans can. And I think that's one of my um, theories of, of evolution going forward. Mm. Can our hearts get a little bigger and more compassionate? So, yes, and especially, again. And especially when challenged, right? I mean, you know, when we're challenged, it, it, it is our opportunity to recognize what else needs to happen. What, yes. know, what, what more can we do how can we soften how can we overcome how can we push through whatever the, whatever the necessary whatever the necessary approach is but it, it does um, when we are challenged is when we become more aware of what needs to happen exactly exactly and in the immediate moment we might not be clear about it but again if we pause pause and plan versus react and again the reactivity may take a while to go away it's it's wired into a survival strategy that serves us in the moment that we're experiencing danger or life threat. But when we can start to shift to more of a Kelly McGonigal is a, is a psychologist and a researcher at Stanford. She talks about plan. And when we can shift into that, then we meet those challenges in a way that's going to be helpful to us. And by definition, if it's helpful to us, it will be helpful to others because again, relationships we need each other we're wired to be in relationship yes we are wired to be in relationship i also want to um bring attention to the pause between the breaths you know i've been very aware for myself and in people that i've been talking to to really be paying attention you know so we're not like in out in out with the breath but that really recognizing that there that there are pauses between the inhale exhale between the exhale inhale there are pauses necessary pauses and that is the place where we can rest that is the place where things actually turn change right is in the pause in the rest in that space yes yeah and that even though yeah, we may it- feel called to action, you know, like, like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? It's, you know, rest first, be in the pause first, the next breath will come, the next idea will come, the next action will come, right? If you really rest into that space. Exactly. Yes. Pema Chodron talks about, you know, the pause at the end of the exhale as that, you know, it's the nothing and the everything. We're need, you know, the inhale is the taking in and the manifestation and the inspiration and we're going to need a lot of that. And the exhale is the letting go and the surrender and the dropping down. We need that as well. That pause is where anything and everything is possible and nothingness, stillness. In Haiti, we talk about it as kaifu. It's the crossroads. It's the place where the vertical and the horizontal meet. And there are moments of extraordinary possibility because we're allowing ourselves to be completely empty. And then we meet the world anew. Novelty is going to be very important. You know, the nervous system loves novelty and how we meet the new, do we meet it with fear or do we meet it with safety and a sense of love? And, you know, no one should judge themselves for meeting it with fear. There are some scary things that are going to happen. There may be somebody else who's able to meet it with a different state, with, with, with love, and then we'll need each other. That's when we might need to take care of each other. There will be certain things where we will be stronger and be able to say, okay, I can meet this one. I've got this one. Mm. And I think that's really important, that idea of novelty and newness. Um, how do I meet it? Yeah, this is just, this is just beautiful. And so 
again to 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 just review or reiterate these these um huh, sort of the difference between the being immobilized by by what you say share uh, terror the the shutdown response and being activated into fight fight or flight and that space right. in between yeah so again when 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 we neurocept or when we perceive the world to use a less scientific term as safe we can socially engage we can be in relationship we can choose how we move in and out of the world how we engage or not danger creates fear and that will create a mobilization fight flight state mobilization without fear are play states and i I'm currently writing about them in a chapter as, as existing on a continuum from competitive, edgy um, fight play to intimate play. And then immobilization. When we are faced with life threat, we feel terror, we will shut down. It's the opposite of mobilization. Mobilization, the heart rate goes up, respiration goes up, blood goes to the limb. In immobilization, we shut down. And we are not... We're not perceivable. We're not perceptible. So that that a threat. I don't know which is the right word right now. Perceptible or perceivable. We can't be seen. We're so still that we won't be noticed. Like we're the rabbit hiding in the hole, so that the danger is going to pass over us, right? Like so that we won't be the target. You know, and this is also you know I see a lot of people you know like depending upon the environment that they live in, if they don't feel that it's safe to express their their feelings or fears, they, they now suddenly are afraid to speak out in a way that they might have spoken out before because they don't know if it's safe or it's not safe. Right, exactly. And then just the, the, the immobilization without fear is, the, is a deep rest and settle. It's bliss. It's resting into the arms of the beloved. It's a deep meditation. So, and, and the way that I describe those from all my work almost 20 years of working with survivors of trauma, the way that most people understand them is as states of calm and relaxed or energized, mobilized, or grounded and centered. And my sense is that the grounding and centering is what allows us to shift freely between the many variations in energized, mobilized, and calm, immobilized. Um, and I know I don't know exactly when we're going to end, but I love to end by teaching this simple grounding technique that can be done standing or sitting because the ability to ground I think is going to be essential to and we need to and to finding our center and to being really clear and the way that I'm going to teach it it promotes vagal tone which is the vagal tone is what enables us to be socially engaged vagal tone is what enables that ventral vagal circuit to inhibit the sympathetic sympathetic adrenal response. Um, it's through the innervation of the ventral vagus nerve to the right sinoatrial node of the heart. But it literally is what keeps us in a state of social engagement. And it's a way of grounding that puts the sacrum in a more flow-neutral state, and that promotes vagal tone. Mm. So, so I, I don't know if we have time yeah, to no, we're gonna do have that time. We're going to make time. We have all the time we need. But before we do, I just want to ask you one more question before we go there. Sure. So the difference between imagined fears and real ones, because, you know, I think, you know, and how that interacts with how we've already, you know, our, our past experiences of what has harmed us, Right. I mean, right now, nothing's really happened except that a, a new president has been elected. But the imagined fears, the projected fears, um, is what's driving people. And so can you talk a little bit about how the body receives imagined fears versus real ones? Well, that's a really interesting question. And what's interesting to me is the word imagined because... You know, imagination, I, I hear the word imagination and I think of a really creative space. I think of how my imagination can dance up or color up, you know, all sorts of wonderful things. Um, our teacher, Emily Conrad, used to say that the brain was a pattern addict, right? And that's yes. very true. The brain, you know, we have um, somatic markers is how Antonio Damasio talks about it. 
um, neural pathways from neuroplasticity, but our brain does have cemented memories, which they're from the past. There are things that have happened from the past that have created these pathways, and they guide us. So something, so the imagined fears may not be entirely imagined. They have some roots in what we know or associate with what we're projecting might happen in the future. So just to use an example, you know, in this new presidency um, where there's evidence, it's, you know, I was watching the news last night and there was some footage from some years ago of President-elect Trump saying that it was, I don't remember the exact words, but it was something about not allowing any more Muslims into the United States. Mm -hmm. So that, in that moment, many of us, had an experience of, oh, you know, I mean, I'm going to swear, but oh, shit, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean? And what is that going to mean, not just for people who are Muslim, but how are we going to do that? How are we going to close the borders? And so for people who actually have any kind of history of captivity, of loss of freedom of movement, Muslim or not, somebody mm -hmm. who's been in jail, somebody who's Who's, been, who's felt captive in a relationship. Any trace of captivity that I know in my body is connected to some emotion, some thought, a neural pathway. And so that can get triggered. That memory might fire up and then it's, oh, this is really bad. This is really scary. So the imagined are probably in this circumstance, I'm imagining many of them actually really have a root. Mm -hmm. something that's not entirely imagined. For some people, they may be truly imagined based on rhetoric and all the things going on. Um, and that's when it's important to come back to center and ground. The body has its own sense of justice and truth. So what's really true here? Um, it can be hard, and I'm recommending to a lot of people, you know, to, to really titrate exposure to the media. Learn as much as possible, but titrate it because of a lot of the fear that's going around. But I think most of, you know, whether or not something is dangerous in any given moment is based on a perception that has some historical reference point. Mm -hmm. And so there is some aspect of reality to it, I think. Um, did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. No, and I, it's, it's very helpful because certainly, you know, all of the... Um, comparisons of Trump to Hitler and to what happened in Nazi Germany and the, you know, gradual and then rapid um, erosion of freedoms and targeting of, of uh, the Jews and other populations, you know, the, you know, what we saw in our own country during World War II of the internment of Japanese who, you know, became the enemy and then suddenly were, you know, within our own country. Um, captured, put in captivity, you know, it's like, we, we've seen examples, uh, in, you know, in our lifetimes. And so it's easy to go there, right? In our, yeah. Yeah. It's easy to go there. There's an intelligence, there's a sanity in it. What do I know from this place? And the question that, you know, I would invite anybody who's, who's having, let's call it an imagined fear to, to take a moment, pause and plan Calm, relaxed, ground, center. Centering is really important. What, where does this come from? How do I know this place? What helps me survive? If I can reference some place in the past and actually mark it, that was in the past. This is why I know this. This is why I believe this. There's always going to be some um, aspect or element of an experience that helps us to survive and maybe even to thrive, to grow beyond, to create, to innovate. So what helped me and what is and put it into practice now now's the time to put anything that we know works <laughs> to keep us strong centered collected connected compassionate just open enough put it into practice yes absolutely so speaking of practice let's go now to the exercise that you want to uh, teach us about finding ground great so um yeah, this very simple grounding process can be done standing or sitting. If you're standing, I invite you to just stand in a way that's comfortable and take a moment to find that. And if you're sitting, 
I invite you not to slouch and not to sit too rigidly, but to actually perch on your sits bones if you know where your sits bones are. Um, the little bones, they're the bones in our butt that sometimes we have to work through <laughs> a little bony part flesh of our to butt. find them. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And I literally like, I, I imagine that I'm a little bird and I'm perching them like a little bird perching on a tree and to mm-hmm. perch on them. And that puts the spine in more of a neutral state where it's not too rigid and not working too hard and it's also not collapsed. Mm-hmm. Standing, again, just stand in a way that's comfortable. And then the, the practices, and actually what I would invite everybody to do is actually just notice the points of contact between you and whatever surface you're standing or sitting on. So it's either your butt in a chair or your feet in the floor. And just notice where you're making contact and notice how much support you're receiving in those points of contact. That's one way we can feel into our weight, which is our presence. It's also how we can sense into, am I able to receive support now? Because our body's relationship, the relationship of the weight between our body and whatever surface we're standing or sitting on, is the measure of support. Our body is where we receive support. It's a receptive state. It's both mm-hmm. an active and receptive state. Mm-hmm. And then, once we have a sense of that, what I invite everybody to do for about 10 breaths, and again, this can be 5 to 50 breaths, but for now, on every inhale, contract the muscles, the gluteal muscles, um, the hamstrings, and the sides, the abductors, that, those muscle groups, the glutes, the butt, I always get the abs and adductors confused. I think the side legs are the abductors and the hamstrings, the back of the legs. Contract them with only about 20% 20 of your strength. You don't want to really squeeze them. It's just an inhale with a simple muscular contraction. In your legs. On the exhale, yeah, side legs, back legs, and butt. Or just, just the upper thigh if that's easier. But just... You just want to contract those large muscle groups, and that actually helps oxygenate the blood, Mm -hmm. which is very important. On the exhale, you let that contraction go and press your heels into the earth or press your sit bones into the chair. So I'll repeat it. The inhale is a 20% of your strength contraction of the back side and butt leg, back side leg and the butt muscles. The exhale... We release the contraction while we press heels into the earth or sit bones into the chair. You can also press heels into the earth if you're sitting. You're simultaneously pressing the sit bones and the heels. And do that several times. And notice what happens to the sacrum. Again, you're not pressing the whole foot. You're only pressing the heels, the back of the foot. And if you're sitting, you're only pressing the sits bones and the back of the foot. Well, first of all, I feel uh, more circulation. More circulation coming yes. in. And I feel my sacrum to have more mobility. Exactly. Exactly. A neutral sacrum, and this was researched in 1988 by Dr. Porges and Robert Schleib, who's um, married to continuum teacher Devo Muller. Um, sacral neutral promotes vagal tone, which means we can be socially engaged. I believe that sacral mobility dimensionalizes that sacral neutrality and actually creates even more options and choices for how we engage with the world. That's my theory. And I've been playing with that and talking to Dr. Porges about it. So that's why if we press our whole foot into the ground, we tend to contract the sacrum. It tends Mm -hmm. to actually create a contraction um, using just the heels or if people can't stand just the sits bones and just the heels, and I don't know if I explained that as clearly as I might have, promotes vagal tone. We can engage with the world in our own timing, in our own, by our own choosing. 
Right. In a way, what you're describing is, you know, when you're freeing up the, the sacrum, which is the tailbone, um, it's almost like it's almost like letting our tail wag. It's almost exactly. like creating freedom in that area to let our tail wag. And we all see from our exactly. animals, you know, when they're wagging their tail freely or excitedly, they're they're in a they're in a excited state, right? They're in a relaxed state. You see what happens, you know, when they're when they uh, either put their tails between their legs, when you know they've been shamed, or when it's like up and stiff, right? So this is our own way of working our tail. Exactly, and I often think that there's a particular intelligence that we've forgotten about about the backside of the body, and I think the more highly evolved human may regrow a tail or something like I'd it. Love because to. personally, I would love to. Me too. Mm-hmm. Me too, because. It's, a, it's, it's, you know, otherwise it's a vulnerable area, the back of the body, and that vulnerability that may create a little more fear. What's coming behind me? You know, what's going to come get me? So, mm. absolutely. So, yeah, I actually was thinking of tails when I started to put this together. Um, but just to review, um, again, it's, it's, a, it's a check-in, you know, notice those points of contact and the support to find a sense of weight and, and how much support we're receiving. The inhale is a, I call it a 20% contraction. It's not a really like, oh, I'm squeezing all my muscles, but it's just a gentle contraction of the butt and the side of the legs and the back of the legs. And the exhale, we let that contraction go while we press our heels into the earth. And if we're sitting, we can also press the sits bones into the chair. What opens the sacrum up into more of a dimensional neutral, fluid, movable space, that's what promotes vagal tone. So it grounds us, increases support, increases our relationship to weight, which is presence, and promotes vagal tone. That's incredible. And you are increasing. Go on. It's simple and it's and incredible. And, you are, you know, your, your experience is more circulation. That's why... I like to group the inhalation with the muscle contraction to promote some oxygenation. Which again, you know, the more blood we have circulating, the more awake and alert our brain is. We're all going to need to have some times where we're very awake. You know, we're going to need as many smarts as we've got right now. (laughs) So it's a simple practice, but it's actually a very important one. Yes. I would say whole body practice and one that can help us uh, gradually move from being immobilized into mobilization, right? Naturally move that way, not have to hurl ourselves into it when we're perhaps not ready, you know, using all of our adrenaline and all of our GER to get us there, but to actually, you know, uh, gradually get us there um, in a way that uh, that is uh, impelled by the movement of the body itself. Exactly. You know, we all, we all need, we'll need to be in the vertical at some point. We'll all need to be in the sagittal, the forward back. You know, we're going to actually need to move forward and a gradual process, you know, shifting from immobilization to mobilization to social engagement. And some people might have gone right into a, you know, mobilization state. Um, and some of those people, some of us may benefit then from you know, finding some rest and settle, some calm, so that any movement forward is, again, thoughtful, compassionate, focused. Yeah. Well, Amber, your clarity and your resource has been so helpful. I can't wait to share this. Um, uh, It's really, I mean, it's been helpful to me personally throughout our conversation, and I know that it will be helpful to anyone who has the opportunity to listen to this. So can you tell people before we finish um, how they can contact you, where they can find you to learn more from you, spend time with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, and I also spend a lot of time in Australia and some time in other places like Haiti and Lebanon, but Santa Fe is my home. I have a website, which is www.restorativeresources.net. Um, it has all of my you know, recent publications and where I'm teaching and training and working on it. 
I'm not so great. I don't. I, I keep it pretty much updated. I'm not so great at social media and uh, the technological world, but I'm getting better. Um, so that's that's a place to find me, and my contact information is there. Great. Great. Um, well, I thank you so much. Thank really. you. Thank, well, thank you for caring. I was so touched when I, when I left your home on Tuesday at the idea of doing this podcast for your caring enough to make some very simple, hopefully simple strategies available to people. So I want to acknowledge your compassionate heart, Karen, and everything that you do. Your work right now, um, changeability, I think is, you know, I think so many of us were actually preparing for this moment and didn't know it. <laughs> Well, we were preparing for some moment and didn't know it. Certainly when, you know, when Mm -hmm. I began to write this book or began to do the podcast that created the book, it really was with the feeling of like, you know, we really do need to be more prepared to meet change with, um, with, to meet change where it is and to meet change with more uh, flexibility that has everything to do with, you know, flexibility within the body because um, whether the, changes coming from changes in climate, whether it's coming from changes in politics, whether it's coming from changes in relationships, uh, shifts of population, whatever these, you know, larger waves of change um, uh, that are predicted, um, we need to be able to move it with a lot of, of flexibility and compassion and, and, and resource, you know, and so, um, yeah, so we are, we are, um, we're working this right now. <laughs> Indeed we are. Indeed we are. Well, I'm so glad that we're on the same team. And uh, <laughs> so uh, I so value everything that you've offered today and, um, and to be continued. Thank you, Sharon. Yes, to be continued. This has been Passing for Normal, conversations about seeding change in the world. To find out more about author Sharon Weil, go to SharonWeilAuthor.com. You can also find out more about Changeability, the book, and about all of the guests featured in this podcast at that website. Large or small, go out today and make a brave change. Whether creating something new or responding to a changing world, navigating change is the new stability.